Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm chatting to Todd Palmer. Todd is a man who's managed to carve out the placement of highly skilled individuals in Detroit in a recession. So he's built a fantastic business. We talk about his journey to being five times out of six in the Inc. 5000 for high growth businesses in the United States. We talk about his imposter syndrome and how he overcame it, how he worked with a coach and he had to confront the brutal facts that he'd hired a toxic group of individuals and that he really had to well, in the end, fire them all and restart his entire business from scratch. So we talk about that journey, how he worked his way through that and how he now coaches other entrepreneurs to overcome their imposter syndrome and really fix themselves as a way of fixing their business. Because he he talks about how he used to get really depressed if his business wasn't doing well and how he was on a high when his business was succeeding and how he had to iron those things out before he could really succeed. So a great conversation with Todd. Also, because he's in the recruitment game, we talk a bit about how to hire and retain great talent and some of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make in going to market to hire great talent. So great conversation with Todd. I'm sure you'll get a ton out of it and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. My name is Todd Palmer. I'm the president and CEO of Extraordinary Advisors and I'm based out of Detroit, Michigan. And what does Extraordinary Advisors do, Todd? You know, what we do is we work with entrepreneurs to work on themselves as leaders in order to make changes within the business. It's kind of like a friend of mine tells me, I help leaders get their acts together so they can get stuff done in their business. It's uh, incredibly rewarding work around the mindset of how an entrepreneur thinks. We deal with things like imposter syndrome, other limiting thoughts and beliefs, and then we put in some of the basic blocking and tackling tools from business. We use Gino Wickman's EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. We use Vern Harnish's Scaling Up. So we use those tools, but we could, we found that we've got to work with the entrepreneur and their mindset first before we can help them work on their business. And how common is that imposter syndrome? How often do you find that? I find it to be very common in the EO community. And entrepreneurs, you know, imposter syndrome for people who maybe have not heard of it or not had it identified for themselves really is um, thinking an entrepreneur, a leader thinks I'm a fraud, I'm a fake. If they find out who I am, the jig is going to be up. Another version of it, this is the version I had when I suffered from it at my worst point is I think I should have all the answers for all the peoples to all the issues all the time. And I should all over myself thinking I should have all these things when in reality, nobody has all the answers to everything that comes up. Uh, well, it's interesting that you say that that was that this was something that you believe that you suffered from, because so often when I speak to coaches, they end up coaching the thing that 
was the failing in themselves or that they see was the failing in themselves? Oh, I, I think that's really very, uh, very true for me. At least it is. It's, you know, it's kind of like if you're, if you're having a substance issue or an alcohol issue, you go to a 12 step program. The other people who run the program are usually graduates of the program. So it's no different than the work I'm doing now. And, you know, when I suffered from it, it was at a point in my life where my business was in really bad shape, but I, as an individual was in really bad shape. It was almost as if if the business was successful, I was successful. When the business was failing, I was a failure. And that was so depressing for me. Literally, there, there were days I couldn't get out of bed. Oh, that must have been awful. It was really challenging. And what I did is I ended up isolating myself. I ended up taking myself out of circulation with my community, with my, my tribes, my peers. And I really became the worst thing I think an entrepreneur can do. You know, There's a philosophy within the EO community an entrepreneur alone is an entrepreneur at risk, and I chose to isolate rather than get help until I really had to hit a bottom in my business. And so now you're working with the EO community. So are those businesses of, you know, I know I think you've got to do a million dollars to join, but are they typically smaller organizations or are they range of sizes? It really, it varies and depends. I work with companies. I have a couple of companies that are below a million and I have a couple of companies that exceed 10 million in revenue. The commonality is, so, you know, like on our podcast today, someone will hear the story that I tell. They'll self-identify that I've reached the ceiling of complexity and I can't break through it. Or worse yet, I've hit bottom and I need help. And then they'll reach out to me to engage them for coaching. So it's really one of those two categories. Business size is kind of secondary. There, there's a threshold that I think is required to have a leadership team, to have people to support you. But I've actually had some really interesting successes working with some solopreneurs who want to grow and get to a certain level. And what we do for them is we call it, we create a life by design. They don't want to necessarily add a management team or layers of people. They want to create a certain lifestyle for themselves. And we lay out a program for that, but they often will suffer from those itty bitty committees in their heads that are giving a lots of negative feedback. Okay. And when you when you working with a CEO and you're saying right we've got to fix fix the CEO before we can fix as, as a way of fixing the business and I suppose that's that suggests that you're working with broken people and I didn't I didn't mean to imply that about your clients but there's a, a work on the CEO so that before we work on the business what what are you doing with what help are you giving the CEOs basically I, I use a lot of mindset work with them. And it always anchors in, this is the, the, the craziest thing that I, until I really started doing this work, I was surprised, is I asked the CEO, what do you want? And why are you doing what you're doing? And I've had CEOs literally in front of their entire leadership teams break down and cry when they really identify what they're doing, why they're doing it, and why, they're gonna, why they want to shift and change. A lot of times, entrepreneurs will start their first business to prove they can do it to either themselves or someone else. I had a CEO recently share with me, and his business is doing awesome, that he still isn't satisfied, and he still isn't happy, and he wants to do more, he wants to be bigger. And I, and I finally got him, I said, why is that so important to you? I just want to prove to my father I can do it. I said, listen, I've never done this for a client, but I'm happy to offer this to you. Why don't you, your dad, and I get on a conference call? Let me tell him, let me validate to him how you're just hitting the ball out of the park. He says, that's impossible. He's been dead for 15 years. <laughs> And I was so taken aback. I'm like, he goes, yeah, I'm basically trying to prove to a ghost I'm worthwhile. I'm trying to prove to a ghost that I've accomplished something. So we spend a lot of time reframing what those accomplishments looks like. We reframe you know, what success looks like. Because a lot of entrepreneurs think 
success is I want to have a million dollar company. I mean, less than 5% of companies in America are over a million dollars more in revenue. It's just a simple fact. Oftentimes we figure out that, you know, whether they have $10 million company, a $20 million company, or a $500,000 company, they're thinking that that success, the money, the accolades that come with it are going to fill something with inside of themselves. A lot of the work we do is helping them reframe what that looks like and creating a life by design so they can change their definition of what success looks like. Because to a person I've worked with, they've had money, they've had power, they've had whatever, but they find that doesn't fill that hole within. So the work we do is getting them to fill that hole within through other mechanisms, freeing their mentality and their energies up to grow their businesses, maybe even in a different fashion. But I just got a testimonial video from a client that I just threw it up on my website where he says, working with Todd has helped me grow my business by 70% in one year. And we've increased the profits by a factor of 5X. Who doesn't want 500% growth on your profits? He goes, but now I love what I do and that's my biggest takeaway. That is a successful client journey for me. Yeah, I get goosebumps listening to you say that. It's it's fantastic. I do the same, you know, when I have similar conversations with clients that I work with, you know, that whole, I've had clients been in tears and they've said, I want to sell the business. And then six months later, they go, you know what? I never thought I would enjoy working here ever again. I don't want to sell the business. I'm enjoying it so much. I went through the same thing with my business. There's nothing worse than hating to go to work at a company you built around your values, around your mindset, around your ideas, and then 10 years in saying, I hate doing this. I don't want to do it anymore. And for me, it became incredibly debilitating. I know we, in our, our earlier talk today, we were talking about the story, and the story is really this. I was $600,000 in debt after being in business nine years. I was two months away from running out of all of my business and personal monies, losing my house. I was a single parent at the time. My kid's freaking out. I reached out and finally got help. I'd hit bottom. I hired a coach. We looked at the finances of the company. We saw opportunities to improve those. We realized the company employees I had were, there was a toxic, dysfunctional culture that I had allowed to occur and went from making a lot of they statements to a lot of I statements, walked in, fired the entire company one day, turned the business around, paid off the debt, and we made the Inc. 5000 as one of America's fastest growing companies a record six times. So for anybody listening who is waking up saying, I hate what I do. I don't want to do it anymore. I hate my company. I was there and there is hope for you out there that you can make a pivot and a change if you choose to. But it requires leaning into those uncomfortable moments. And for me, it was looking in the mirror to realize my contribution to my environment, my contribution to my company, and how I needed to show up differently in order to make the changes that were required. How many people did you have in the firm at that point? At that point, we ha I let 12 people go. 12 people. That was everybody. Yeah, that was everybody. You didn't have a dog to keep. You just, that was the whole lot. The whole team. And um, it was interesting because I remember when I hired my first employee after I right-sized the ship and got everything going in the right direction a couple months later, she comes in and the entire office is empty. It's just a bunch of empty desks. They come, I, my office was in the back. She comes walking in and she sits down and she's like, um, where is everybody? <laughs> And I had to be honest with her because I decided that the imposter syndrome wasn't working for me anymore. And I said, I fired everybody. I'm looking to restaff my team. I need help. And I switched the process. I was always hiring people with recruiting backgrounds. I owned a recruiting business. And I decided to come up with a process that I would hire good people and teach them to be good recruiters, which ultimately came up with our, our process, hire for DNA, not for resume. And we talked about it. And she says, I can help you. I want to help you. 
and I said, why is that? She goes, well, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur until I just heard your horrible story. <laughs> and I was dying. I was cracking, cracking up by that point. And she was, she's been with me since her name is Becky and she's been with me every day since. And she's literally sat on every leadership team, every committee. She's moved seats on the bus because she's just a really good person who's got a really good work ethic and is willing to learn new skills all the time. And is she the sort of yin to your yang? Like if you're the sort of the visionary guy, is she the, is she the implementer in? Uh, yes. She sits in that seat a little bit. I've had, I had a, a couple other people who moved in and out of, the, of those roles. I was definitely the visionary. As soon as I would solve one problem, I want to chase that bright and shiny thing and not stick through. And that's where my coach came in. He kept saying like, I kept saying, well, you know, this is working better and we're making money. We're paying off the debt. Maybe I should go do this. And maybe I should go. He's like, why don't we come up with a different goal? Like, why don't we squeeze a couple more margin points out of what you're currently doing with process improvement? Oh, okay. All right. And because and I trusted him and he'd help me figure these things out. In fact, now with the client, I had a client the other day say to me, you know, business is going great. I'm thinking about starting this brand new thing. It doesn't even align with what he currently does. And I said, well, why do you want to do that? And finally got him to say, he's like, I'm kind of bored. I said, oh, then let's just shake that up. There's other ways for you not to be bored as compared to taking your money, taking your money down the path of something that's not going to be nearly as rewarding and profitable just because you saw it on some Shark Tank episode. We're not doing that. <laughs> I have similar conversations with people like that all the time. Oh, let's start a telephone business. Why do you think that would be easy? Like, why do you think anybody in this company would even know where to begin? I get the guys who are like, hey, I think I'm going to open a restaurant. And he's in the tech space. I'm like, tell me why you want to do that. Oh, because, you know, I want to take some place to my friends and I want to do this. And, you know, I watch this bar rescue show and it makes it look so easy. I'm like, really? Okay. So you do realize that the average failure rate of a business, regardless of its category, is about 80% nowadays. You do realize the average failure rate of a bar or restaurant is over 92%. So what's going to make your space so cool and unique? Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, what they end up doing is like building a home bar in their basement or something because like, yeah, that's not going to work. But they all think that, you know, I can do this and they like don't realize, you know, bar businesses go till two, three in the morning and then they got to go work at their tech business you know, at 8 a.m. the next day. It doesn't work. Yeah. And if you've got half a million dollars to burn on this idea, to fix it up and then run the, have the working capital, there must be other things you could do with half a million dollars that might be more fun and less stressful. Oh, for sure. And it's getting them to realize that. Well, and this is what I've ultimately figured out is most of us, like I said earlier, start our first business to prove to ourselves or others we can do it. I know like with my second business, Extraordinary Advisors, it's really for a legacy. And my legacy is I don't want others to suffer like I suffered with imposter syndrome and, and negative self-talk and some of the decisions I made and not understanding my finances and all that other stuff. And so when they say, I want to do this, well, what legacy play can you have? How can you take that, that burning, passionate desire to do something Make it a little bit of a side hustle to start, and let's see if there's legs to it before you, you put $500,000 into a bar or restaurant. And getting them to reframe, anchoring in what ultimately what they want and what legacy they want to leave with their family, with their friends, with their employees, with their community. And so how do you describe your legacy? You know, for me, I was really blessed, and I was really fortunate. As I was turning the business around, I did my first year at a, at a program called Gathering of Titans. And the first speaker I saw was a guy named Simon Sinek. He hadn't even written his book yet. And I engaged Simon and we worked with him for about two years and he helped me figure it out. And my legacy is I want to improve lives. So I do a lot of volunteer work with, with startup entrepreneurs to help them. And I tell them my cautionary tales 
Uh, we help them put things in place. I work with high school kids. I work with my clients. I figured the best way for me is to really impact as many leaders and entrepreneurs so that they can avoid some of the challenges I ran into, work through some of these challenges quicker. Because when I was going through this, nobody talked about imposter syndrome. Nobody talked about the spiral of depression a lot of entrepreneurs go through. Nobody talked about the burned relationships, the toxicities, we, how we can destroy things. So I, I will go out there and I'll share my story. I'll share the stories of other people so that uh, you know the listeners and the audiences can understand that these things happen to a lot of people. So if it's happening to you, it's, it makes you actually more normal as compared to the, the black unicorn you see yourself as being. Uh-huh. And so going back to the your uh, recruitment business, you were $600,000 in debt. You fired 12 people, right? What are the other numbers? I mean, at that point, what was your revenue? And then what did the revenue, what was the revenue growth you achieved to get in the Inc. 5000? So the, the Inc. 5000 is, is a three-year rolling number. And so we made it six times in a seven-year window. So essentially, we had about a 10 to 12-year run of, of growth year over year. And we grew, crazily enough, in Detroit during the recession, which seems very counterintuitive. And we really figured out our, our goal is we, we had to find what we call an inflection point, where there was an increased demand and a diminished supply of human capital. And we found that to be in the CNC machining space, in the high-end welder space, and some of these other high-skilled areas. Like Now, the average American welder, I just saw the data, data point the other day, is about 53 years old. So if I've got a 25-year-old welder with five years of experience, he's my next superstar. So how do I market him? So we used to go out and get what they call job orders. You know, a company would say, I need somebody. And we would find them that person. We flipped the, the script on that. And we said, hey, I've got these three really great, talented guys. Could you use any of them? And even if a company wasn't hiring, the ones with some foresight and ones that would moved away from automotive in Detroit into aerospace or uh, medical device manufacturing said, yeah, I could use that guy. And it's going to be a little bit of a struggle, but we'll find work for him because when the economy turns around, then we're going to have the great talent because it really became the battle for the best talent. And that took our revenue from about a million and a half to about 10 million in that seven year run. Very good. And so you then became the go to for specialist welders. Yeah, welders, and, yeah, manufacturing talent. You ended up with the top of the funnel, and uh, people knew that they had to get it off you, otherwise, they were going to struggle. And that sort of manufacturing talent becomes the bottleneck. I mean, these companies end up with orders, but they end up with no ability to deliver. So, Absolutely. The biggest challenge across any business nowadays is that battle for talent. One of the speeches I give, you know, I go on stage and I'll, I'll explain to the people how we got here in the United States. You know, we've got full employment, 4%. We've got baby boomers leaving. We've got the lowest labor participation rate in 50 years. Then we have the millennials who are supposed to be coming in to replace the boomers and balance out the scales. While the millennial unemployment rate is 8.1%. So the millennial unemployment rate is double that of the average American worker. So you've got a battle for talent. So the challenge becomes, how do you get through that? And oh, by the way, Mr. Manufacturer, your battle for talent just doesn't exist with other manufacturing companies. Amazon pays 15 bucks an hour to start, full benefits day one. So you're competing with Amazon for people to start, entry level. You're competing with a restaurant chain called Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A pays $16.50 an hour. You get every Sunday off. So for kids who like American football, perfect. And you get free Chick-fil-A food, which is one of the fastest growing fast food chains in the United States. So that's who your competition is. It's not the days of 
Well, they should be, just be darn happy to have their entry-level job, and within the next two to five years, we'll start working them up the ladder once they get more skills. It's shifted and changed so much. And once people can wrap their brains around that, hire differently, approach the talent differently, that's where they can really win the battle. I, I do this exercise on stage where I actually show people how I would poach their employees from stage and the language choices I would use, and it freaks them out. But that's what's going on behind the scenes. So let's just pull the curtain back. Go on, go on. Give me because I, I, I mean, I when I'm speaking in front of teams of people, I say I have a similar conversation. I say, hands up if you think you're finding di- recruitment difficult. Every single person in the audience puts their hand up, but they are mostly still thinking that they have a divine right for an A player to walk through the door and beg them for a job. I mean, they haven't. You you are preaching to the choir, right? Most organisations, well, they're not doing marketing particularly well, and they haven't yet worked out that recruitment is marketing, and they well, I've got a job and my job ad isn't any less boring than everybody else. What's your spiel? How would you, how would you, how do you poach people? Go on. I, th- I think we're brothers from other mothers across the world. <laughs> me and my friend. I'll often, you know, lay out the, the, here's your, here's how we got here. Here's the numbers. And I'll say, does anybody know the number one reason why somebody leaves a job? And, oh, it's money, it's location, it's the drive, it's the work. And I said, nope. The number one reason people quit a job is because they don't like their boss. Yeah. So does anybody know the number one source for your next great employee? Indeed, LinkedIn, ads, ads, ads. I'm like, no, the number one source for your next great employee is your current group of employees. So if you have no current employees because they don't like working for you, you've lost your best farm system. So here's what you have to do. You have to figure out how to become an employer of choice. That's really what happens because when I call to recruit somebody away, one of the first questions as a recruiter I ask them is, why do you want to leave? And like, well, especially on a cold call, well, you know, I'm really happy I don't want to leave. And we create language tracks to ask them and identify, do they really like their boss? By and large, 82% of people are ready to engage and entertain other opportunities because of the people they work for. So once I can figure that out, and then I start playing that card, okay, Dominic, yeah, see, oh, see, you, you like your boss. Well, he's okay. What does okay mean to you? Well, you know, I, I get most weekends off. Oh, okay. And what shift are you on right now? I'm on second shift. Okay. So if I can get you a place where you get every weekend off on first shift at 20% more per hour, five miles closer to your house, would that be of interest of you? And I just stopped talking. Well, because that 20% is probably not enough on its own, but they value the closer to home. They value the shift. You've created a sort of 30 or 40 or 50% difference in their lives if not in their pockets, and that's enough, then it's worth to, it's, it's worth at least having a conversation, isn't it? It's worth going on the interview. And then I prep the client saying, here's all the things they don't like about where they're at. You've got to be the antidote to that, that problem. Because millennials, statistically, millennials will trade money for freedom and flexibility. Millennials will trade money for more conversation with the leadership team and how they can impact the business. Millennials want to work at a company with definable, measurable core values that can be seen throughout the organization. And they'll work there for a similar, similar range of pay. The pay's got to be you know, marketplace condition appropriate, but they will switch. And the, uh, what do you think about the hiring manager? Because the other thing is in, this, in that scenario, you want the hiring manager to interview the person and they've got to go, I'll, it's de-risk because I've met my new manager and I think he's going to be a better guy to work for than the guy I work for today. Absolutely. And don't leave, don't leave the hiring just to HR. Let's get the managers involved because that's why people are going to leave. Yeah, half the time our battle is getting HR out of the way. 
And, you know, because the HR will say, okay, well, you know, the hiring manager met the candidate. You know, it's like dating. They fell in love. They wanted to work here. So now I've got to put this rag in and all the, and they, time kills the deal. Yeah. I always tell clients, listen, if you interview with somebody on Monday and you want to make an offer to them, make it to them by Wednesday and let's get them closed by Friday. Let's not wait. You know, this is the worst thing. Well, you know, I got to check with my boss. So you started the interview process without getting full power to make the hiring decision. That's what I'll say. And like, well, no, that's not what I said. So we said you got to check with the boss. I go, as a recruiter, my job is to get my candidates on five interviews, to get three offers, to get one hire. It's a very simple formula. That's how I make my living. You're holding me up. So my candidate is going to go on more interviews. So if you think he's that great, my recommendation is you make him an offer now. Because if you don't, and he is that great, one of the other five places he interviews with will make him an offer. And by the time your boss gets back to you from his private island in, in Greece, the guy's going to be off the market. So what are we going to do here, people? It's incredible, isn't it? It's beggar's belief I because I have a similar conversation with clients where you know, you talk about them, they've got difficulty hiring. Have you seen any great candidates? Yes. What happens? Oh, well, by the time we give them an offer, they've accepted a job somewhere else. And like, well, why didn't you make them an offer the day after you saw them? Oh, well, you know, we had to talk to Bob and we had to talk to Francis. And it's just like, just line all that stuff up. It's easy. Yeah. Be proactive. Don't be reactive. Again, and w- what happens is for the candidate, and this is what I, I try to always explain this when I'm on stage, is by and large, the hiring managers in the office are the audience are only looking at the world through their own set of eyes. Said so you got to flip the lens. You've got to understand that your candidates are uncomfortable. Changing jobs is a challenge. You're going home and selling it to the spouse is a tough thing. So the more you make that path smooth, easy, and convenient, the more they're going to want to work with you. But you continue to throw roadblocks and bottlenecks in front of them. They're either going to stay where they are because it's the devil they know versus the devil they don't know. Or they're going to take another offer because as the recruiter, I only get paid if I get them in front of as many hiring managers as possible. I was working with a client a couple of weeks ago and we talked about exactly that. People, A players leaving, leaving their team leader or their manager. They see that as one of their challenges. And so they've committed to having all of their team leaders and managers, A players, by the end of March. And so they're, they're absolutely, the executive team's completely committed to that. Everybody rated, feedback done, Christmas, change out the managers we need to change out by March. Because they just, they know they can't fix the people problem until they fix the manager problem. I mean, it really comes down to, it's, it's people and processes make the profits. It's not, but the, the differentiator really, I've never not see it be the people. Always the people. And A players are 10X B players. And so, you know, people go, we need more staff. It's like, I've never, I've never run a company where the staff have said, we need more staff and that we actually needed more staff. What we needed was we needed some better people. Right. And once you put some better people in, you know, look, any sports team in the world, it's not the team with the hardest working. You just got to have better people. And that's what I figured out. When I, I mean, when I fired everybody and I started over, I had to hire better people. It's such a challenge, I think, sometimes for entrepreneurs because most entrepreneurs I've ever met are really nice people, and they have a very hard time hiring slow and firing fast. Well, the reality is in today's world, you got to hire hire relatively quickly, but if someone's awful and they don't fit your culture and they were not as advertised, then you've got to move them out, and it, what it becomes really is addition by subtraction. Everybody else knows that Bob needs to be gone. What You think he's going to be gone in March, you finally fire him in July, and everybody's looking at you like, what took you so long? The boss is an asshole, is what they're thinking every day that Bob's still in the office. Yeah, it's like, does it? It's like I do this this thing where I, I teach my clients how to fire with compassion. 
But the first thing I tell them is when you walk in the room, you've got to be committed to letting them go because they're going to they're gonna go through the 12 stages of grief in about six minutes and they start bargaining and they start negotiating and they start begging and whatever else. The reality is 99 out of 100 people who get fired know what's coming. You rarely surprise somebody. So be committed and then start helping them start build, building a better future. And if you... As the owner, you as the entrepreneur made a poor hiring choice, own it. Hey, Dominic, it's just not working out. And the re- reality is it's my fault. It's not working out. I should never have hired you. I was in a pinch. I hired out of desperation. And you're really, you know, it was just not a good fit. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a two-week severance. And I want to help you build out what the next six weeks of job searching is going to look like for you and how I can be of help to you. Because the reality is today is your last day, but you could be a great employee for somebody else. And let's help you figure out how to do that. We need a letter of recommendation. Can I make some introductions for you? Because again, you did your very best, but it just doesn't fit for what we need. That's honest. Unhelpful. Well, why not free somebody up to do something they should probably be doing? Because people have a hard time quitting a job if it's okay and no one's recruiting them away. And well, you know, I got a family to feed and I got bills to pay. Yeah, Again, it's better than not working. And so they'll tolerate that. It's like staying in a bad marriage just because, well, 20 years ago, we were happy. <laughs> yes. We've got kids. Yeah, we've got kids who are now in college and have their own lives. But yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Fantastic story. And and I like the way in which people will be able to take your, your feedback and take it to heart and do something different, do something different tomorrow in their business. Todd, knowing what you know now, is there a, is there a bit of knowledge that you would take back in time? Oh my gosh, this could be a whole other, a whole other episode. <laughs> so the, the, that's the curse of being a lifelong learner. I, I never stop learning. I remember in 06, the first thing I, my coach told me is, you knew you should have made a lot of these changes a long time ago. Don't take so long. Trust your gut. If it's not working for you today, it's not going to be working for you tomorrow. So that was kind of the practical piece. The second piece is when I was young and I was you know, chasing the revenue, what I was leaving behind is not having the financial literacy to chase the margin. So getting so deep into debt and having to dig my way out of that, I became very much a, a big believer in being focused on the margin, not necessarily on the revenue. And really, I think lastly, I, I really think there's such value in hiring for DNA, not hiring for resume every time. Certainly, if you, ha- if you need to hire an accounting professional, yes, they have to have an accounting background. But bring in five or six accounting people, interview them, and find the best pick for your team best fit for your culture, but it's incumbent upon the owner and the hiring manager to know your culture points, to know what fits for your company, what doesn't fit for your company, and hire accordingly. Fantastic. And as a lifelong learner, this could be episode three then, if we're not careful. What books have you read along the way that have made an impact on you? Maybe two or three. Sure. So the first book that really shifted everything for me back when I, in 2006, 2007 was Good to Great by Jim Collins. And I took so much business knowledge up. My coach insisted I read it. We talk a lot about the Stockdale paradox of re- dealing with our brutal reality, finding ways through that. So th- that book was a game changer for me. I think the, the latest book I, I really enjoyed is a book called Unblank Yourself, the concept around mindset from, a, uh, I think he's a guy from, oh, I think he's a guy from Scotland. It's called Unscrew Yourself, How, how to Get Your Mind Right. And by putting in the right pieces in our thinking and how we can take on a different 
a different approach to our personal life, to our family life, and to our professional lives. And it's that permission to go out and be your authentic self without apology and go out and make the impact for your life. Because at the end of the day, we only spend 24-7, 365 with one person, and that's ourselves. That sounds like a good one. That fits with your work with your clients. What, what you got? Anything else? Anything else you've read recently you thought that was, that was good? You know, I, I, a book I probably read a couple of years ago that I really I reference a lot with my clients is a called, book called The Freak Factor okay. by a guy named David Rendell. And David's approach is very simple. He's like, what's weird makes you wonderful. And David is such a, uh, you know, I've gotten to know him a little bit. I've seen him speak several times. And his construct is the things we were told about as kids that were our negatives and are often really our positives. And he uses a personal story from stage where he talks about, you know, I think David's six, seven. Okay. He's a short guy then. He's a short guy. He, he really is. And he wears bright pink. So you never see him in the airport. And literally, he corrects me. He's like, I'm almost seven feet tall anyway. So I might as well, I'm going to be standing out. I might as well carry my brand with me wherever I go. And he tells a story about when he was in school, his teachers told him to sit down, be quiet and stop bothering other people and quit talking so much. So now, and he, he listened to that for a long time. Now he makes a great living around the world speaking from stage by not sitting still, by talking all the time, and by sharing his opinions. He goes, what was weird about me, what, what I was criticized for as a child, is actually who I really am. And I need to embrace that. So not only does he have freak factor for entrepreneurs and business leaders, and I think this is even more important to, in today's world, he has freak factor for families and for kids so that we as adults and parents can teach our children to really be their authentic selves. Yeah, I think that's the whole education system trying to get everybody to be more normal, be more average and be less spiky. Where the successful people are all spiky. We're not well-rounded. We're good at something and rubbish at the other things. Oh, gosh. Oh, I, absolutely. I was a terrible student in the classes I wasn't interested in. I dwelled well in the classes I liked. I mean, I'm like, but I would always, get, you know, I did this to my son. And he and I talked about it. He's now 28. He's an accountant. And I'd say, you know, you get six A's and, and one B. And all I did was talk to you about your B. Bad parenting on my part. Let's talk about the ones you're doing well and how we get you to do more of that. Play to your strengths. Yeah. Todd, it's been fantastic to chat with you. Thank you very much for being on. Dominic, thank you for having me. I enjoyed being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.